Welcome to the Healthful Woman Podcast. Today's Monday, September 13th, 2021. Today, we start a three-part mini-series on placenta accreta. Placenta accreta is when the placenta attaches to the uterus in an abnormal way, such that it does not separate from the uterus after delivery of the baby. It puts the mother at significant risk of bleeding and hysterectomy. Since one of the most important risk factors for placenta accreta is a prior cesarean delivery, and the rate of cesarean has increased significantly over the past 50 years, the rate of placenta accreta has increased as well. In today's podcast, I am joined by Dr. Brett Einerson, who is an MFM at the University of Utah and an expert in placenta accreta. Brett and I are going to discuss what exactly is a placenta accreta, who is at risk for it, and how we diagnose it. Next week, Brett and I will talk about how we manage placenta accreta during pregnancy and at the time of delivery. In two weeks, I will be joined by Professor Elon Timor to talk about cesarean scar pregnancy, which is a precursor to placenta accreta. So that's the accreta miniseries all mapped out for you. Interesting stuff. A few more highlights for this week. First, in honor of Yom Kippur, which is coming up later this week, we are going to be re-dropping our podcast from last year, Jewish Fast Days, Can Pregnant Women Try to Fast? with Dr. Stephanie Melka. This is going to drop tomorrow morning. Later this week, we're going to have a high-risk birth story. So, lots going on this week. For now, enjoy the beginning of our mini-series on placenta accreta. Thanks for listening. Have a great day. Welcome to today's episode of Healthful Woman, a podcast designed to explore topics in women's health at all stages of life. I'm your host, Dr. Nathan Fox an OBGYN and maternal fetal medicine specialist practicing in New York City. At Helpful Woman, I speak with leaders in the field to help you learn more about women's health, pregnancy, and wellness. All right, Dr. Brett Einerson, how you doing? Welcome to the podcast. It is great to be here. This is so exciting, and I appreciate you coming on in general and also taking time out of your summer vacation to talk to me and to talk to our listeners about a really important topic. How's it going over there in your vacation in Minnesota? It is a little bit humid, more humid than I'm used to in Utah, mm-hmm. but the sun is shining and it's another nice day in paradise. Our listeners might not know this, but I do. You're a physician. You're also an MPH master's in public health, and you are an assistant professor of OBGYN and maternal fetal medicine at the University of Utah. Amazing. So I'm, I'm curious, how'd you end up in Utah? It was a long and uh, sort of meandering route to Utah. I grew up in Minnesota. I went away to North Carolina for medical school. That's where I got my MPH, the University of North Carolina. And then I ended up in Chicago for residency and wanted to try something totally different for fellowship. Fully expected to spend a couple of years out here and frolic in the mountains and then go back to the Midwest or some other part of the country. And I really got sucked into the people and the climate and everything else. Yeah, I mean, they're amazing people at Utah. It's just, it's one of these things that people would never realize, like, why Utah? And I think part of it is just because everything is centralized. So all of the, you know, the high-risk patients go to basically one place and all of the transports come to one place. And so you have an amazing volume there. Uh, an acuity. And so you have to have really good people there. And so your department has built a really, really great team. I agree with you. I work with some of the most inspiring and awesome and frankly, normal people uh, (laughs) in MFM. (laughs) There's so few of us who are normal. Yeah. (laughs) 
tell me about your time in Chicago because that's my hometown. So say nice things. Where you were at Northwestern? That's right. Went to Northwestern for residency. I loved Chicago. It was totally different than I expected it to be. I fell in love with the city. Rode the L train every day to the hospital at five o'clock in the morning to get to residency on time. Lived eight blocks south of Wrigley Field. Became a wannabe Cubs fan. Just had a fabulous, you know, ate the best food of my life and and the, and had a, had a just awesome four years there. It's amazing. And I'm I'm curious, how'd you get interested in placenta accreta? Because you know, clinically, research-wise, this is something that you you're involved in. You do. That's right. I run the placenta accreta program at the University of Utah, and I got into it a little bit by just random circumstance. It wasn't something that was on my radar necessarily as, as something I knew I would wanted to focus on when I left residency. So did general OBGYN residency and then wanted to specialize as a high-risk pregnancy doctor like you are mm-hmm. and sort of didn't have a creed on my radar as something that was going to be a key feature of what I do. But when I came to the University of Utah, it just became apparent to me that this is a, a really difficult problem to deal with, a really scary thing for patients to face, something that we are seeing increasing numbers of. In addition, I just didn't see all that much helpful information in guidelines or in the research to tell us how to take care of these patients best. And so I got inspired to both take care of these patients and to help to do research in this area. Did you think you were going to be doing more on the fetal side when you were doing your fellowship in maternal fetal medicine? Because a lot of people, you know, when they go into the the fellowship, some of them are thinking, well, I'm going to really focus on the fetus, like, you know, diagnosis and ultrasound and procedures and others, you know, maternal health and maternal morbidity and complicated medical conditions. And so you said you sort of found yourself in a credo, which is more the latter. Was that a surprise to you for that reason? Or just you always were interested in maternal health, but not specifically this area? I think the second one that you mentioned, to me, I was always a little bit more interested in taking you know, I wanted to be a well-rounded maternal fetal medicine doctor and be able to do ultrasound and take care of families who have complex fetal diagnosis. I never had aspirations to sort of be within the fetal world. There was always the maternal component that really drew me in. I, despite how difficult and frustrating it can be, I loved taking care of critically ill pregnant patients. I loved being somebody who sort of straddled the worlds of pregnancy care and medicine and critical care. And so the surprise for me was was falling into the actual specific diagnosis of accreta, which honestly I hadn't seen that much of during residency. But when you come to Utah where people have a lot more babies and people yeah. have a lot less access to to VBAC, there just was a, an enriched group of, you know, tons of people dealing with this issue that I hadn't seen nearly as much of in, in at Northwestern. And the reason that there's a lot of women there having a lot of babies is because of the high Mormon population? Not just Mormon. I think uh-huh. it is. I think Utah is one of the only states in the country that's still sort of <laughs> actively replacing the population with more people than <laughs> are passing away. It's just big families are a part of the culture here, whether that's Mormon or another or other cultural issues. People have big families. And our little circle in New York City, we have a similar practice because we have a lot of women who have a lot of babies. We're doing women's you know, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth cesarean. And as we'll yeah. talk about, that's one of the ways you start taking care of people who have accretas as well. The volume goes up. And as you see with more cesareans, there's going to be more of this 
complication. It's interesting that, that you talk about critical care and medicine because these are really involved. But Accreta, as you know, and our listeners will learn if they don't know already, is very much a surgical field. Also, it's you know really hands-on operations. And was that something that that surprise you that you were doing a lot of these? Or were you always like in residency, were you really interested in oncology and doing those complicated gynecologic surgeries uh, as well? Yeah, in residency, I was, a, I kind of was one of those people who loved everything and saw myself doing all of it, mm-hmm. but also recognized pretty early on that I wanted to be the expert of something that was difficult to master. And so it's hard in residency because I wanted specialization so I could be that expert. But specialization oftentimes means giving up a skill set that you learn in your more general training. And I really lamented the potential loss of some surgical procedures and skills in going into maternal fetal medicine. It was a hard decision for me because I did love surgery. I gravitated toward surgical procedures, but ultimately what drew me into MFM was pregnancy and pregnant people and their families. And I loved that time in a in a person's life when they're when they're going through that sort of you know really life defining event pregnancy for me is endlessly fulfilling to help take care of patients and, and difficult and so I knew I would always have challenge challenging cases challenging patients and happy and sad situations going into MFM but I did worry that I was going to lose out on some of the surgical skills that I had developed and so Akrita came along later in fellowship and I was like, gosh, this is this is actually kind of a way where I can continue to, to flex that muscle that I've been training in residency in terms of surgery, but stay within the MFM realm. It's interesting. And you know, around the country, people who take care of women with Akritas, some of them are OBGYN, some of them are maternal field medicine specialists, some of them are GYN oncologists, some of them are general surgeons. And it's really just it is a very complex surgical technique that needs to be used. And so people can come at it from different angles. And it's great that you got to continue to do that. So good work. Good work, Brett. Thank you. Let's delve into placenta accrete itself because we've been talking about it for a few minutes and some of our listeners might not even know what we're talking about. How do you explain to people just in general, what what is a placenta accreta? I tell people that the placenta is normally an organ that detaches easily comes off after the delivery of the baby. So it comes off of the surface of the uterus without any difficulty, or usually without any difficulty. And placenta accreta is what happens when the placenta finds its way into an area of the uterus that usually that's been scarred, either by cesarean or another procedure. And when it sets up in that area early on in gestation, it really digs into the muscle. And that's not a normal place for a placenta to be or live throughout pregnancy. So at the time of delivery, what happens is that the placenta doesn't come off easily. And as a result, it either has to be sort of physically removed or surgically removed in a way that causes a lot of bleeding. And so that's the way I describe it to patients is that it's a placenta that just does not detach in the normal way. Additionally, I I tell people as as they start to learn more about it is that it's a it's a problem that really transforms the normal blood vessels into something much much scarier. So blood vessel blood needs to flow through the uterus to the placenta, normal for a placenta, but in placenta accreta it is really set up abnormally so that the blood 
goes sort of directly into the placenta. And when you remove that placenta, you can have really rapid and life-threatening bleeding. You know, when we talk to people about, let's say, risk of an accretion, like before they're pregnant, and they're like, well, what's the big deal if the placenta gets stuck? You know, it's sort of harder to take out. And, you know, you have that all the time. You know, you have to, you know, get something out that's not so easy to do. So why do we care so much? You said there's a risk of bleeding when the placenta comes out. But I think just to to sort of quantify that, we're not talking about like bleeding, like a nosebleed. We're talking about hemorrhage, right? This is like people can, you know, totally lose their entire blood volume quickly because these blood vessels are so huge. So that's that's one of the big things that there's a major risk for hemorrhage. What else are people at risk for if they have an accreta and it's not treated properly? So if we don't know about the diagnosis of accreta, it can be a really life-threatening situation. The main issue is rapid bleeding, like you state. I mean, the, the way that the gynecologic oncologist who trained, one of them who trained me, called it the potential for audible bleeding. You can just have, you know, bleeding that is so rapid that it just fills up the entire body within a matter of moments. So that's a, that's a risk, as we've stated. The other problem is that it is very, very difficult to take care of this problem without removing the uterus. And while some alternatives to hysterectomy, which is removal of the uterus, have been proposed internationally, it's still kind of a difficult to perform procedure and something that has risks unto itself. So most women in the United States who have this diagnosis will end up with a hysterectomy at the time of their delivery, which of course means that their potential for fertility in the future is lost as well. With massive blood loss, some decent proportion number of women will end up in the intensive care unit afterwards because when you, when you lose a lot of blood, we have to give a lot of blood to keep you alive. And as a result, your body needs time to transition. So we can't do that very safely um, in the normal post-operative or, you know, the postpartum unit. Often, oftentimes we'll have to be in an intensive care unit. The last big thing that I think about is that because placent, the placenta grows into the spaces in the uterus and pelvis that it's not supposed to be, there is oftentimes damage to other organs in the pelvis. And the most common one is the bladder. So uh, oftentimes the bladder has to either be cut into or is already involved with placenta in a way that means that the bladder has to be partially resected and, or, you know, partially cut into and then repaired to safely get the uterus out. Like you said before, I mean, this is a surgically complicated situation, a life-threatening situation and something that, you know, a lot of people haven't even heard about until they come into the office and get the diagnosis. Yeah. And a lot of people also ask, okay, is there any risk to the baby? with having this abnormally attached placenta? Like, does it affect the baby's development or growth? Or does it put them at risk for, like, delivering early, for example? Yeah, the main risk is early delivery. So what I what I tell patients is that the difference between a well-planned surgery where we're all ready to go and an emergency surgery in the middle of the night is like night and day in terms of surgical difficulty, in terms of the complexity of the surgery and how dangerous it will be, and in terms of the stress that it puts on patients. The problem with the creta is that it sort of sits in an area that makes the uterus mad 
for lack of a better word. And oftentimes patients will go into labor or break their bag of water earlier than they would have otherwise because of placenta accreta. So as a result, it's a long-winded way of saying this, but I deliver all patients preterm at 34 to 36 weeks, if not earlier, depending on the circumstances, to avoid that middle-of-the-night life-threatening emergency. So prematurity is the big one. With regard to like how does the baby do throughout pregnancy, actually surprisingly well. I mean, we have some research that's been done to look at whether or not the growth of the baby is affected, and we think it's probably not. And so thankfully, the placenta still functions normally and provides baby with everything that it needs while it's growing. But the main threat to babies is the is the complications that come along with prematurity, so difficulties with breathing, difficulties with feeding and growing. Right. And as you said, you're sort of in a you're in a tough spot because on the one hand, you are going to deliver early to avoid, you know, that middle of the night disaster where, you know, someone comes in at 36 and a half weeks and they're hemorrhaging before they get to the hospital. That's I mean, that's it could be the difference between life and death, literally. And then so you're, right, you're like, OK, so we can't have that. Like we, we just have to avoid that because it's just it's not an option that anyone wants to have. And so how early do you deliver? Because we don't know when someone's going to go into labor on their own or when their water's going to break. You know, if we had a crystal ball, we would do it the day before, right? <laughs> we just, okay, you know, take that day and subtract one and let's do the operation that day. But since we don't know, you have to sort of do it early enough that it doesn't happen, but not so early that the baby is so premature that he or she's going to have very severe complications. And so yeah, we do it around the same time. I think most people in the US do it in that, like you said, the 34 to 36 weeks and potentially earlier more things are going on, but that is, uh, that's a significant risk potentially. And and also you can have that plan and it doesn't work. Someone going to labor, you know, a day before you had it scheduled and the same problem could happen. Do you ever admit people to the hospital beforehand for X amount of time leading up to the delivery? Uh, what I tell people is, the answer is yes. I, what I tell people is that to stay out of the hospital, things, it kind of has to be the perfect storm of everything's going right. Like, your pregnancy has been uncomplicated. You're not having any labor contractions. You don't break your bag of water early. You don't show any signs of preterm labor. You don't have a lot of his, a lot of preterm births in your past. So if all of those things are true and things are going along great, then we try not to admit people until the day of their delivery or the day before. Right. But I have a very, very low threshold to admit somebody to the hospital for anything that even resembles labor or, you know, any any amount of bleeding at all. And most people are going to be in the hospital for the remainder of their pregnancy, at least once they get up to the second and third trimester. Yeah. So it's, it's a, we admit a lot of patients to the hospital because in part, you know, working in Utah means that at least half of my patients live more than three hours from the hospital. I cannot have somebody living four hours away, start bleeding at home at 33 weeks. You just can't have that. So it's too dangerous for them and too, too hard on, on, on the systems to you know fly them here on an airplane and everything else to get to save their life. So if patients are coming from a long ways away, I have them move to Salt Lake City and stay in some of the housing that we have set up for them. If they're having any symptoms at all of labor or they think they've broken their bag or they have some spotting and have them be in the hospital for much longer than I normally have a patient for the same complaints. 
Yeah, and this isn't something that you want to just go to your local hospital or your local emergency room because, you know, they may be able to give you a blood transfusion and they may be able to draw some blood, but they may have no idea how to treat this, how to do this, you know, the operation and and you're stuck and they know this. They don't like they don't want you to show up there, right? It's not good for anybody. Exactly. You have to really go to yep. a place that knows what they're doing uh, and has a team set up and that's part and we'll talk about this part of planning when someone has it, but it's you know, it's it's one of these things that you figure, all right, if I, you know, if, I, if you have a heart attack, you're going to the closest hospital because every emergency room, you know, on earth knows what to do when someone's having a heart attack or having a stroke or having, you know, falling and breaking a limb or something like that. But this is, you can't just show up in any hospital with this condition, especially if you're bleeding. It will not be good. Exactly right. Most hospitals in my area of the country don't have enough blood to keep people alive <laughs> for yeah. this problem if they start bleeding. And like you say, the expertise and the, and the experience really matter. This problem is still uncommon enough. I used to say rare, but I really shouldn't say rare. It's uncommon enough that not every doc has seen a case, even every OBGYN. And even if they have, they have a healthy fear of it and know what their hospital can or can't handle. And the reality is that most hospitals do not have enough blood in their blood bank to safely keep people alive if they start bleeding heavily. So totally right. Experience matters. The blood bank matters. The, you know, the number of cases that doctors take care of every year really will make a difference in how patients do once they start moving towards delivery with this problem. Right. Well, now that we scared all of our listeners into them thinking, oh, my God, what if I have a placenta creta? It's not going to be good. What are the risk factors? Like, how would someone know that they're even at risk for this? Now, I will say that anyone who's pregnant could have this. It could happen in someone's first pregnancy, I've seen that where it's totally unexpected. Nothing is suspected to happen to delivery, but that is exceedingly unusual, right? That's really, 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 that is rare. But what is a sort of a setup for this? Who should think I'm at risk for this and I need to be sure this isn't going on? If your listeners listen to one moment in this podcast, I, I want to say that what, what you've just said, and what I'm about to say is probably the thing that I want them to take home more than anything. If you've had C-sections one or more C-sections, and your placenta is low in your uterus, you are at an extraordinary risk for having this problem. And it doesn't mean you're, you're bound to have it if you've got plus a low placenta, which we call either a low-lying placenta or, or a placenta previa and a prior C-section. But you're just at significantly higher risk for this problem. And so if you have had C-section before, and have a placenta that's set up low, I think you've got to have an expert who knows something about this problem. Take a look at your history, take a look at your ultrasound and figure out whether or not you're you're at risk. Yeah. And I think one of the reasons this is so confusing for patients is the terminology, there's overlap. People hear placenta previa, people hear placenta accreta. They're both sort of like weird terms that both have the term placenta in them. They're very different, right? Previa just means it's low down covering the cervix. It's like the location of the placenta is really what it indicates. And accreta means whether it's stuck to the uterus or not, which can happen anywhere in the uterus. And so they spend the first half of the conversation trying to figure out what's the difference between them. And then the second half is when we tell them they're linked. <laughs> that if you have a previa, it happens to increase your risk of an accreta. And then it starts getting really confusing. But yes, the for whatever reason, and there is there are histologic reasons, but it is absolutely true, when the placenta implants low down in the uterus, that is not where the uterus wanted it to implant, and it's much more likely to be an accreta, 
And then if there's a scar there from before, because we make the cesarean scars low in the uterus, it just compounds that risk entirely. And I, I know you know these stats. It's it's really crazy. Like if, if you don't have a placenta previa, the chance of having an accreta is 1% or less for pretty much everybody, unless you're the person who's had five, six, seven, eight C-sections, something really high number, right? If you've had one C-section, two C-sections, and your placenta is in a good spot, you're at very, very low risk. But if you have a placenta previa where it's in the wrong, no, not the wrong, but a very low down location, it could be two to 3% risk of accreta on your first pregnancy. It's 10% if you've had a cesarean before, and it's 40 or 50% if you had two. So the woman who comes to me with two prior cesareans and a diagnosable placenta previa, it is like, all right, we have to assume this placenta is stuck unless, you know, we can, you know, every single picture shows it's not. And even then we're worried when we do this, you know, the operation that it could be happening. It's always on our minds. And that's really important because I don't think everyone out there knows that they're at risk. That's exactly right. I give talks to, to sonographers and people who read ultrasound in the community. And the thing that I they, invariably somebody will ask what's the most important thing I need to look for on an ultrasound when a patient comes in to, to figure out if they've got a creta. And I think they're expecting me to say, well, the, you know, if you turn on the Doppler flow, it sort of looks like this, or if the placenta has this characteristic sort of lakey looking appearance, then that's the thing that's most reliable. No, it's, does this person have placenta previa? Is the placenta low? And if it is, that's a whole different risk category than than anything else. So one of my slides in the slide deck that I have is, don't forget, previa is a sign of accreta. There are other operations people can have on the uterus that will increase the risk. You know, it's not just cesarean. It could be a scar from a fibroid removed or something called Asherman's where there's scar tissue or, you know, DNCs for miscarriages or for abortions. And yeah, they're all there. But again, the risk is always higher with the previa. And why is there no great diagnosis for this? Meaning, unfortunately, when people come to me, I can tell them, you have a very high chance of this. You have a low chance of this. You have a medium chance of this. But why can't, why is it very rare that you could say you absolutely do have this or you absolutely don't have this? Unfortunately, we're just at a place where we don't have the tools to tell somebody definitely yes or definitely no, like they do in some other areas of medicine. So we try to use ultrasound to determine if people are at risk, if they've got a preview, is this an accreta or is it not? But the reality in our practice, I'm sure you know as well as I do, is that sometimes it doesn't look all that bad. And you're sort of thinking to yourself, yeah, this placenta will probably come off. And then you get to the day of their surgery and that's not the case at all. You get inside. And it looks totally different than what you're expecting. And vice versa, sometimes you look at a placenta on an ultrasound and it sort of gives you that, that little bit of hesitance. You're like, I don't really like how this is looking. And then actually by the time delivery comes around, it's not looking too bad at all. So what I would say is that a lot of the signs that we think show that you might have a creed are just normal signs on ultrasound. Unfortunately, we can't be super reassured one way or the other, you know, either reassured that you don't have it just based on an ultrasound or totally worried at your first ultrasound. So oftentimes what we need to do is take a look at the, how the placenta acts over the course of pregnancy. And then ultimately, I mean, we can get other tests too. There are people are 
developing blood tests to try to make a better diagnosis of this. People have tried to see if MRI could be helpful, which is a more advanced test that you can get to look at the placenta. But ultimately, it comes down to how does the placenta look on the inside and how does it act after delivery? One of the things that just, you know, really frustrates me for patients is the uncertainty of all of this. You go to the expert expecting to get the yes, no, and what you hear is, I think you're at risk. We're going to have to wait and see until the time of delivery. Yeah, it's it's definitely unsatisfying. One of the ways I explain it to people, and most of the time when I'm explaining it, I'm explaining it to like the residents or the students because they're not freaked out, you know, in this conversation, yeah. you know, because with patients, it's a whole different rule because they're worried. So and I'll say, you know, it, I'll put my hands together, like clapped together, and I'll say to them, how would you tell if there's super glue between my hands holding them together versus not? And there's no way to know, right? Because the, the attachment of the placenta to the uterus that's abnormal could be microscopic. You wouldn't yes. see it by ultrasound until you try to, if I try to peel my hands apart and there's super glue, well, when the skin starts falling off, you'll know it's super glued. And it's the same thing with the placenta. And that's sometimes how it is. So when they present to patients as, okay, this is, you know, Mrs. Whatever, and she has four prior cesareans, she has a placenta previa, but it looked normal on ultrasound. And I'll be like, I don't really care. <laughs> like, like, that's great. <laughs> exactly. You know, I mean, like, that's, that's exactly. nice to know. Better it looks normal than it looks abnormal. But we're still going to be prepared because just statistically, there's like a 70% chance it's going to be an accreta. Yes. And so if the ultrasound's normal, maybe it lowers it, whatever, to 20%. I don't know, something. But it's not going to lower it to zero. And if you're not prepared, you don't want to just be surprised in the middle of the operation when you try to take the placenta out and then she starts bleeding. And so, like you said, knowing it's a previa and knowing someone's history is way more important than all the fancy knobs and colors and stuff we can do on an ultrasound. And it, most of that's just experience. It's not imaging skills. It's really just having people who, who are aware of this and know it's a risk and you know have the humility to, to know that our ultrasounds are limited. Humility is a great word for this because I think that when you take care of 10 patients with Accreta, at least a couple of them are going to surprise you in terms of the actual problem is worse than you thought when you looked at the ultrasound or the, the actual problem is not as bad as what the ultrasound looked like. And so you're talking to a doctor who feels very confident about the diagnosis or the outcomes, honestly. I think that that's actually cause for some concern. You want to with, with Accreta, the honest opinion from people like me is that we're not going to know for sure exactly how bad this is going to be until the day of your delivery. Yep. And, and, and that's, that's just the truth of, of the state of our care for patients right now. We, we haven't yet figured out how to make a sure diagnosis. We haven't yet figured out how to for sure rule this out. And while that is frustrating, it is just truth. What did you find when you looked at MRIs? Because people think MRI is the big thing. It's going to you know, solve everything. We can see better than ultrasound. We're going to make this diagnosis, rule it out, rule it in. What did you find in your research? So we found that MRI is a technology that can be misleading. The baseline assumption, both for doctors and for patients and other healthcare team members is that if you get the more expensive test that gives you the fancier looking images, that it's going to be better. And that's just not the case with MRI. MRI can be just as misleading, if not more than ultrasound. So what we found is that oftentimes when I get an MRI sort of as a tiebreaker, like I, you know, 
one of my colleagues thinks this ultrasound looks like a creta. Another one says, I'm not sure that that's a creta. It's probably going to be normal. If I get the MRI as sort of a tiebreaker, oftentimes it won't tell me the right answer. Um, and the reason, the way that we figured that out was just to look at what the ultrasound diagnosis was and then the MRI diagnosis and then compare it to what actually happened when the patient had a delivery. And MRI was not more accurate in telling us the truth of what was going on inside of the body than ultrasound. And in fact, gave some, some of the time gave a falsely reassuring answer, which really is concerning to me. So if the MRI says, don't worry about this, and then the patient goes back to rural Idaho to deliver, and it was wrong, that's a problem, right? Yeah. I've just sent her back to a hospital that can't really take care of her. So I think that MRI is imperfect, just like every other test that we have, but it's a, a, a fancier and more expensive test with fewer doctors who actually have the expertise to read it. So my preference is to start with ultrasound and rely heavily on it. Now, there are probably some situations in which MRI can be helpful. There are certain locations in the uterus where the placenta can be difficult to see with ultrasound. In that case, maybe MRI is helpful. But I love your analogy with the superglue between your hands because this, whether you're doing an ultrasound or an MRI, neither test knows if the superglue is there. Yeah, And I think there's this idea, especially, I mean, maybe I'm speaking to doctors and for the patients when I say this, but like MRI is not, doesn't have a better way of distinguishing between those microscopic changes than ultrasound. Yeah. Despite the fact that it costs more and takes more expertise to read and all the rest. Yeah. And also the, typically when you're having an ultrasound, well, not typically, frequently, it's going to be by the person who's going to be taking care of you or someone who has the same career, at least, is the person taking care of you. Because uh, a lot of them around the country are done by OBGYNs, maternal fetal medicine doctors, whereas MRI is done by radiologists. And it's not uh, knock on radiologists. They just, they don't do gynecologic surgery. They don't, right? It's, it's not their right. specialty. And so there is some, you know, level of that in interpretation. And if I recall, one of the interesting things in your study was that if you had an ultrasound diagnosis and the MRI changed it, said, no, it's not A, it's B, it was just as likely to change it from a wrong to a right diagnosis as a right to a wrong diagnosis, right? It was just exactly. as likely to mislead you as to lead you in the right direction. It's like 50-50, wasn't it? Yes. And most concerningly to me is that it was it was frequently the misdiagnosis yeah. was a was a <clears throat> downgrading, meaning yeah. ultrasound, you're a little bit worried. MRI says no big deal. This person can deliver wherever you want them to, and that was wrong. Hey everyone, I hope you enjoyed part one of my discussion with Brett Einerson on placenta accreta, explanation, risk factors, and diagnosis. In part two, we're going to be discussing management and delivery. So stay tuned for that podcast next week. Thank you for listening to the Healthful Woman podcast. To learn more about our podcast, please visit our website at www.healthfulwoman.com. That's H-E-A-L-T-H-F-U-L-W-O-M-A-N.com. If you have any questions about this podcast or any other topic you would like us to address, please feel free to email us at hw at healthfulwoman.com. Have a great day. The information discussed in Healthful Woman is intended for educational uses only. It does not replace medical care from your physician. Healthful Woman is meant to expand your knowledge of women's health and does not replace ongoing care from your regular physician or gynecologist. We encourage you to speak with your doctor about specific diagnoses and treatment options for an effective treatment plan.